audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information about our church, for more sermon audio, or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, good morning. I am, what you're going to notice about me this morning is I am absolutely giddy because we get to start into a brand new book, a brand new series this morning. I cannot wait. So here at Stone Oak, what we typically will do is we will just, we will teach through books of the Bible. Um, We do this for for several reasons, but some of my favorite things about this is because, um, first of all, it reminds us that this is our authority. Amen? You can say amen to that one. This is our authority, and it reminds us that that is our authority. Um, second is we were, we're going to address things as God's words brings them out. It gives us this well-rounded diet, if you will, as a church. And I love this, and, and it, it grounds us in this. We, we let God's word speak, and it's amazing how much we are going to cover. And by the way, we're about to step into a book that Oh, we are going to cover some things. Uh, Third, though, is it is amazing how when you spend time with an entire book, how much it will open your your eyes. When you immerse yourself in the context of the the whole book, you walk away having such a a much better understanding of of the text and, and God's word. And so I cannot wait. We are starting at the beginning of this journey. And by the way, 1 Corinthians is where we're headed. Um, 1 Corinthians is one of these books that you don't have to have much imagination. You don't have to use any imagination to see how this book applies. This book is incredibly applicable to exactly where we are today as a church and as a people. I cannot wait. Um, So we're going to cover a lot of ground for three verses uh, this morning. And, and so I want to invite you, but before we turn to actually 1 Corinthians, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. And while you're getting there, I, I, we don't say this enough, but if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you're here and you don't have one, um, you do now. Uh, we would love the opportunity as a church to give you one. Somewhere around you is a hardback black Bible. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love the opportunity to, to give you one. Um, this isn't in exchange for anything. You don't have to let us know. Just grab it, take it home with you. As I said, we, we firmly know and believe that this is our authority. So if we as a church can put this in the hands and the hearts of as many people as possible, that is a win. So feel no guilt. In fact, we would love it. So if you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you, and you can even write in it, do whatever you need to do, all right? Um, all right, so um, before we get into 1 Corinthians, it, when we're stepping in a book, it's always good to kind of give ourselves a little bit of a context for what we're stepping into, and uh, this, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth, um, and before we introduce you, and by the way, it was written to this church, before I introduce you to the church, I'd like to give give you a bit of a glimpse of, introduce you to the city, because it makes a profound impact on, on what Paul is writing here. The best way to think about the city of Corinth, use your imaginations with me, imagine New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all 
in one mega city. Picturing it? That's a lot like what Corinth was like. When we say Corinth, when we talk about the city, I want you to, to picture a city that would be a lot like, like that. It's a city where you went to make something for yourself. Make something of yourself. Um, it was a city that was in the heart. It was the, the biggest trade route. It was a booming business city, trade and, and all of that that comes along with it. And so what that means is this city was beautifully diverse. You had people from all over the place coming to this city to do business. People from the east, people from the west. It was beautifully diverse in, in ethnicity, in religion, in socioeconomic status. In every way, this city was just a, a melting pot. So diverse. And that was Corinth. And by the way, the church that we're about to meet, that's where they, they were right in the heart of this. They were right in the heart of this. Also key to understanding Corinth is it had a bit of a reputation. Corinth was known for being one of the most sex-driven cities that the world has ever known. It had a reputation uh, for being one of uh, sexual exploration, sexual sin. It was rampant in, in, in the city of Corinth. They didn't have marketing slogans back then. If they did, though, what, stay, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth would be greatly applicable here. We actually have uh, record and writings and archaeological findings that, that show us, point to the fact that um, this city and all of its sexual exploits, just use your, I mean, reason here. If it is a city of trade and commerce and people from all over coming together, what do you think is going to happen? So, so what, we, what we see in the records is that this was a city known for human trafficking, sex trafficking. Uh, as strange as this is, we have even records that it was a city known for STDs. That's Corinth. What, it, it was basically like all that Las Vegas is known for. There's Corinth. There's Corinth. We see their brothels still today. There was actually a writer, Aristophanes. He was a Greek writer. And he wrote um, in a lot of his works, I don't know if he coined this term or if it was just a common uh, usage, but uh, Corinthiazo. Literally, it means um, to, to act like a Corinthian or to Corinthianize. And do you know what he would use this term to describe? You can probably guess. Sexual exploits. It was synonymous with fornication. To Corinthianize was to fornicate. The city was so known for this that it became synonymous with its name. Like, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. And, and hear me, our church that we are about to be introduced to is right in the heart of that. It's like planting a church in Las Vegas in some senses. It is difficult work. And that's the, the church that we, see, that we see here. So 1 Corinthians was written in about 55 AD. And it was, it was um, before we start into it, that what I'd like to do is rewind three years. 
because what I'd like to see is how this church started. Give us a little backstory on this church as we drop into the letter. Give us a little backstory of this, of this church. And so let me introduce you to the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth. And to do that, let's look at Acts 18. Acts 18, and we'll start in verse, in verse 1. So um, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila and a, a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So here Paul arrives in the city that we just described. The Apostle Paul steps into this city that we just described. And because of opposition and pressure, Priscilla and Aquila had come and they, they meet up there. By the way, just God has this strange way of taking what the enemy means for evil and for bad and using it as a tool for good, such as persecution to make you flee from your home. Now God is going to use, just be warned, this is something that God um, still does to this day. But here's Paul, and, and they come together in Corinth, and in verse 4, and he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In other words, Paul is just there preaching the gospel. He's preaching so that they would hear, going to the heart of the synagogue, telling them about Jesus. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I love that. Testifying to the Jews that, that the Christ was Jesus. Where's Paul? He's busy, right? He's busy. He's telling people about, about Jesus. Um, and I also love this next part because it gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope. So Paul is just pouring out, right? He's just... The Apostle Paul is pouring out about who Jesus is, what he has done, telling everyone about the gospel. Do they hear and accept? No, not at all. Not at all. It's not going, it's a rough start at Corinth. Uh, verse 6, and when, they and, and when they opposed and reviled him. It's not a glowing start, right? It's not what he was, I'm sure, hoping for. Um, Listen to this. Paul does what only, I, he, what only he can do. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So his heart was to see uh, Jew, Greek, there in the heart of the synagogue, come to know Jesus. That obviously wasn't going well. And so listen to what he's about to do. He, he, he says, I'm going to go and just fine, I'll tell the Gentiles about this. But look what he does. I, I love this. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Listen to where his house was located. His house was next door to the synagogue. That is, Paul is bold, all right? He is, he is the man. He storms out and knocks on the door, like right next door. And... Um, Paul was the man. Again, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, 
together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So what just happened here? God just expanded Paul's audience through a little persecution. Just took what the enemy meant for bad, went next door, and all of a sudden people are hearing and responding to the gospel um, not only the, the, the Gentiles, but the Jews too. And many heard the gospel. Many believed and responded and were baptized. Here's what just happened. A church was planted. This is the church planting story of the church in Corinth. This is how they got their start, through persecution. That's how they got their start. This is the church that three years later, Paul would write the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. This is the people. This is their origin story. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you uh, to harm you. That's a good thing for Paul. It's counter to his track record. But listen to this. For I have many in this city who are my people. God had a plan for this city, even this city. God had a plan. He had a people that were there. His heart was for them. I have many who are my people. And he stayed there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So for 18 months, Paul just serves this church, just goes and preaches the gospel, pointing them to Christ. And it was at that point that things get a little dicey for Paul, um, which, again, is not that abnormal for, for Paul. Uh, if Paul measured his success by level of opposition, Paul would be a blazing failure because everywhere he went, there was, op and what's crazy is it is often the very thing God uses to make disciples and plant churches. And, and, but here, again, um, in Corinth is no different. Verse 12, but when uh, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when, God, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. It's kind of like, I don't care. Um, I refuse to be a judge of these things. So he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this because, again, it wasn't his thing. So, so here, they, they don't grab Paul. They grab this, this poor man, Sosthenes, and, and begin to take out their aggression. He was the ruler of the synagogue. So whether or not he had come and joined in with Paul in this Jesus movement, or maybe he just let it happen under his watch, he took the, um, he took the brunt of it, and, and they went to town on him just right there. And after this incident, Acts tells us that, that Paul stayed there for many days later, and then he sets off for Syria and, and sets off as this church was planted. So what we just witnessed was a church being planted in a pivotal community, a very difficult community. We just saw a church 
being established. We just saw God himself say, I have many people in this city. I have many people here. I have people who I'm bringing to myself. I have a plan. This was the Corinthian church. This is how it was founded. This is the church that we're about to drop, that we're about to drop into. Now, let's fast forward. Three years. Paul, like I said, has, has since then left, and uh, Paul was a bit of a serial church planter. He just goes, opposition, plants a church. Goes, opposition, boom, church. Like, that's just what he did, and so he would move, and he would plant, and so Paul was doing that, and he continues on, and Paul starts to get word, reports, about this church in Corinth. He starts to hear these reports. He starts to hear about the struggles and the issues the sin from this church. And Paul loves these people. Paul planted this church. He was there in the trenches with them. And he starts to hear these reports. And at the heart of this letter that we're about to look at, 1 Corinthians, is just a response letter to the reports that Paul is getting about this church that he loves. He's writing this in response There are multiple concerns that we're going to get to. Some are touchy, just be warned. Um, But there are multiple things that Paul is going to look at, that Paul is going to address. All but one are moral, ethical, behavioral things. Um, But with every single one of these concerns, Paul is, his goal is to show how the gospel should affect the way that we live and the way that we act. Every one of them. Paul is, is, hear me, Paul is writing to a church who is in the middle of a very difficult community. A church that is feeling pressure from that community to start to look like the community around them. He's writing to a church that is in it and that is starting to be affected by it. It's a good thing that doesn't sound familiar. Now, um, the, the moral problems that, that Paul is, is facing, I don't want you to hear me wrong. This is not a letter of be better. Stop sinning. Like, don't expect to come here week after week and just we're just gonna smash rules at you because that's not what Paul does. The incredible thing about this letter is with each of the things that he is addressing, he founds it on the gospel and tells us why the gospel should inform the way that we live. It's all about the work of Jesus and what that work calls us to to be and what that work calls us to do. And so in Corinth, we see a church that's living in the heat of, of, of a culture in sexual exploration, division, um, confusion, sin. Um, life in this church was not glamorous. It's not kumbaya moment, but God loves this church. And in the middle of it, Paul reminds us of the gospel, which is beautiful. And he's instructing them how to, how to live. And, and I want you to know that the challenge that the Corinthian church faced, church, this is our challenge. This is it. What we're gonna see today is that this is our Challenge. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but several of the truth claims of Scripture are just straight up offensive to our world. They are straight up offensive. 
Paul tells us in this letter that the gospel will be foolishness to the world. Shouldn't surprise us. But it is offensive. We're confronted with a culture that seeks to conform us to its image. They want us to think and to act and to be and to value certain things. And they're okay with the church as long as it does that. But as soon as the church takes a posture or a stance that runs counter to our cultural message is the moment that we have a problem and we have a crossroads. We're gonna talk about that. We live in a culture that, that bombards us with, a, with a, a plethora of options for disobedience and sin and things that are counter to the gospel. What do we do? What do we, what do, we do? So much so, if you don't believe me, you're crazy, but if you don't believe me, we even have a term for this. We have a term called carnal Christians. Theologians have used this term to describe Christians who profess to be Christians, but yet look and act and smell and think just like the world around them. Carnal Christians. Um, this is not just the ancient world of Corinth that we're dealing with. This is us. This is us, and Paul is concerned with showing this church how to live out the gospel in the midst of it. And that's exactly what this letter is gonna help us to do better. Having said that, let's open to 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, like I said, we are going to be going real far this morning, uh, three whole verses in, in, the, in the greeting. So, so we're gonna be in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians this morning. As I said, I am absolutely giddy. So here we go. You ready? If I'm the only one excited, I'm okay with that. I really am. Um, verse one, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Okay, pause. That name sounds familiar. Um, wasn't that the guy that just got beat down publicly, Right? Of course, our letter doesn't say, when I say Sosthenes, I'm referring to the guy who was beat down in, in Acts 18. He, it doesn't say that, but most indications are that this is the same man, which means, one, fortunately, he survived. Uh, but, but two, praise God for the gospel transformation that is on display here, because now this man is obviously doing ministry in life with Paul which is incredible to see him championing the faith. But, but um, in our brother Sosthenes, verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's camp. Paul begins this letter with a foundational reminder of identity, who they are. Paul starts here. Remember, Jesus said, I have a people. Stay here because I have a people who are mine. Well, Paul here is reminding them. Jesus told me he has a people here. You are that people. He's reminding them of who they are. Now, so many times we can skip over greetings of letters. Like if you go to Ephesians, Philippians, Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Peter, like you look at the, most of them have a standard greeting and we can fly through those sometimes. They're all pretty similar. Um, 
typically that's true, but Paul's greeting here is a little different. It has some additives that are important and intentional, as we're going to see. Um, he says some things that lays a foundation for where he is going to go next. It doesn't take him long to drop into his first issue, but he's laying a foundation first. And, and, and so first, Paul says, as he addresses the church in this letter, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Bit of a unique phrasing as you compare it. Um, church of God, saying, church, you are God's. We belong to God. We belong to God. We are God's. We belong to God and not to Corinth. God has purchased you. God has called you. God has set you apart and placed you in this culture. Although your culture is trying to influence you and tell you that you should do the things they want you to do, you belong to God. He's reminding them. You are not the church of Corinth. You are the church of God that is in Corinth. There's a big distinction there. And I want us to think right off the bat, collectively as a church, um, we as a church family belong to God. We don't belong to Stone Oak. We don't belong to San Antonio. We don't belong to Texas. We do not belong to America. We belong to God and God alone. And there is nothing that the world can throw at us. There is nothing that the world can throw at us to stop the church of God. Nothing. No matter what the world, how the world wants us to act, what the world wants us to believe, or what, the, uh, what we're told the church should look like. We belong to God, and therefore our authority, again, is his word. It is his word and not our culture's opinion. That's a freeing statement. As a pastor, can I just say that there is a lot of joy and a lot of freedom in saying those words. There is so much joy because I know that it's our place. We strive to please him and not them. That's great news. I know that God loves Stone Oak Bible Church more than I do. That's great news. We belong to God. Then Paul adds to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. In this context, the word sanctified here means to set apart, to consecrate. Um, it's the word used to when you take someone and bring them into the inner circle of what is considered holy. And that's what's on that's what's described here. It's to be called out in Christ. That we are called out in Christ. You are not marked by your culture. You are not marked by what your culture values. You are not uh, set apart for your culture's sake. You are marked by the gospel. You are marked by Jesus Christ. You are marked by the word of God. You are, are set apart. But you're not set apart for your culture, you're set apart for God in your culture. It's a big distinction. We have been called out in Christ. Paul is reminding this church right at the beginning who called them. Who was it that called them? And as if he needs any more clarification on this point, he adds one more. Um, 
you, and, and again, I said this greeting's a little unique. This is very unique. This greeting that he adds right here is, is different from all the others. Paul adds this, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what's Paul doing here? He's reminding them that you belong to God, you are set apart, called out in Christ, and you are a part of the global family of God. He's reminding them of their identity. Um, you're a part of a family church in Corinth that is bigger than your city. It is beautifully diverse. It is cross-cultural, cross-nationality. Um, you are a part of something so much bigger. You're a part of a family that spans thousands of years. You're a part of something so much bigger. You're a part of a huge movement, and that is your family. And when you see that, when we see that, all, suddenly our perspective begins to shift. And we can look up and be able to maybe withstand the pressure that we're currently facing when we get a bigger perspective of who we are. And, and Paul reminds them, um, you're a part of something that is so much bigger. Look up, look up in the middle of a crazy world, in the middle of crazy Corinth, in the middle of crazy anti-gospel community, look up and realize you're a part of a bigger family, a bigger movement, something bigger than, than your city, than what they value, than the trends that is current, than, than even bigger than yourself. He's encouraging them to look up and let that realization give you strength and maybe some courage to live out the gospel in, in the context that God has you in. So we belong to God. We are called out in Christ. We are part of the global family of God. This is who we are. This is our identity. This, okay, here's why this matters. <laughs> it matters for the Corinthian church, but here's why it matters for both the Corinthian church and Stone Oak Bible Church. Here's why this matters. Because having a, an understanding of who we are, our identity, is going to combat a couple tendencies that we have. And I'd like to talk about some of those. They're important for us to see as we move forward. Um, when we, like the church in Corinth, find ourselves in a culture that is against what we believe, right? When we find ourselves in a culture that's anti-gospel, anti-the truth of Scripture, when we find ourselves in this place, um, we're going to have some tendencies. Let's talk about the first one. Tendency number one, we can get mad at sinners for sinning. Have you been there? Are you brooding even this morning at this? Um, we look at our culture, we look at our community, and it just infuriates us. We see the sin, we see the trajectory, it breaks our heart and we get angry. I know I have, I have been so, there are some things that happen in American culture, let me just be honest, that makes me angry. But instead of having this righteous anger toward the sin, like instead of that, instead of having this righteous anger because it breaks the heart of God, instead of that, um, we can slip into this weird anger against sinners. Um, we can find ourselves just 
angry at the world, angry at our culture, angry at the world that my kids have to grow up in. And all of a sudden we look and we start blaming them for all of this. Have you been there? I'm gonna say something profound. Ready? That's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. It's like being angry when a car horn honks. It's what it does. Horns honk. Sinners sin. Being angry at them is a lose-lose situation. We should be angry at sin because it breaks the heart of God, because we see the, the negative effects of sin on the, on the sinner. That should break our hearts. We should be angry. But that should never slip into being angry at the sinner. We should never slip in Our response cannot be anger. It needs to be love and it needs to be the gospel. Love and the gospel. That's that's our response. Only Christ can transform a sinner's heart. Not your judgment. Only Christ can transform a sinner's heart. That's it. That's all. You're living proof of that. Only Christ can transform a sinner's heart. And how crazy is it Like, just think about this. For us who have been transformed by Jesus, to get mad at people who haven't been because they aren't acting like they have been. Like, that's weird, right? As I said, ridiculous. It it doesn't make sense, but this can be our tendency. And this tendency comes from a place because we forget about who we are in Jesus Christ. We forget our identity because we forget about the grace of Jesus Christ. When we start to catch ourselves just angry, angry at sinners, it's because we've forgotten about the grace. We've forgotten that they are us apart from Jesus Christ. Like, there is nothing we have to set ourselves above any of it other than Jesus Christ, and we, we forget that. That's tendency number one. Let me, let's move to tendency number two. We try to get sinners to stop sinning. There's this old skit that just says, like it's a counselor meeting with someone and she brings all these issues up and, and his response is, stop it. Just stop it. That's what this response is a little bit like. Just, just stop. Well, good luck with this one, right? I don't know if we've, we've ever tried this, but what this means is we focus all of our efforts on just getting the lost world around us to see the error in their ways, to get them to just stop it. Like just Stop sinning as much. Be, um, be a little more moral, right? Um, again, let me say something profound. That is ridiculous. That is a losing battle. That is an absolutely losing. We don't want to make just better behaved heathens. Right? I mean, that's not what our goal is. That's not, we don't want a bunch of really well-behaved heathens. When sinners don't become non-sinners, sinners don't become saints by trying real hard. Um, Sinners who try hard to stop sinning don't become saints, they become self-righteous. That's where that road, and that's not our aim. That is not at all and never has been our aim. In fact, there's a term for that, that's legalism. This tendency comes when we forget 
that, that the transformational work of, of God is, is an inside-out work, that the Spirit works in us and on us, and as a result, we bear fruit. We don't take fruit and staple it to a tree, and no, no, no. It's an inside-out work, and when we forget that, then we try to work on the outside, and instead of preaching the gospel, and instead of living out the gospel, we start to preach morality. And again, can I just remind us, this comes from when we forget who we are. It comes from an identity crisis because um, we, we forget, I guarantee, none of us experienced the, the salvation of Jesus Christ because you tried real hard. I guarantee it. I guarantee that none of us in this room have cleaned ourselves up good enough to become a child of God. I guarantee it. So if it's not true for you, stop trying to make them do it. Like, working on symptoms is not going to fix the core, the brokenness. That's what the gospel is for. Let me go to tendency number three. And in full disclosure, this is the tendency we see most rampant in the Corinthian church. Uh, so we can get mad at sinners for sinning. We can just say, stop it. Try to get them to stop become better behaved, or like the Corinthians, we can join sinners in their sinning. Where we can say, you know what? I capitulate, I concede. Sometimes in the name of love and tolerance, um, we sometimes in, let's just be honest, sometimes it's just in straight up pursuit of pleasure and sin. Um, we, as God's people, we as the church, called out, remember who we are, called out by Christ, start to look just like the world around us. All of a sudden, the people in the pews don't look any different from the world. We, we value the same things. We uh, spend our time in the same ways. We spend our money in the same ways. We spend our energy. We, um, we pursue what they pursue. We, we look no different. There's nothing that distinguishes us um, and here's the, we start to bend God's unchanging word to better suit this ever-changing culture that we find ourselves in. We take what is timeless and true and we begin to, well, let's bend it. We become progressive to our detriment. Welcome to Corinth. If you can't beat them, join them. Welcome to Corinth, and, and let's just be honest, um, welcome to the American church in 2017. As I said at the beginning, it doesn't take much imagination uh, to see how this letter applies directly to, to us. And yet again, this is an identity problem. This is an identity problem because we've forgotten who we are. In Christ, we've we forgot it. We've forgotten that we're called out. We've forgotten that we belong to Him. We forget who we are, and all of a sudden, our culture our culture tells us who we are. And because we've forgotten, we say thank you and we go. You know, and and here's what we're going to see as we open this letter together. Um, just as the Corinthian church, what we're going to see the American church is facing a very similar culture, a culture of uh, sexual confusion. Sexual exploration, uh, division, um, slander, 
gender confusion, gender role confusion, many more. It's all, it's all what we're about to step into. And we look at a culture who is calling for us to change our stance. Our world is begging with us. We'll play nicely with you if you just change your stance as if that were up to us. The American church is in this place where we have a Bible in one hand and we have our world, our culture in the other. And we look at these things and we say, how in the world am I gonna bring this together? Like what does bringing that together what does that look like? How on earth will these fit? Do I get mad at sinners for sinning? Do I get mad when, when this over here doesn't look like this over here? Do I just get mad? And in that case, it's like, I'm just gonna drop these stinking sinners and I'm just gonna hold on to this. The problem is, is this doesn't give us the option to do that. And so that can't work. That doesn't work. Do, do we just try to get sinners to stop it? Stop sinning. You know, in that case, it, it, it's kind of like this becomes a little three-pound, I don't know how much your Bible weighs, but weapon that we wield. It's just, stop it. Like, stop it. And, 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 and that doesn't work. Bending our culture to try to get them to our morals doesn't, doesn't work. Or do we just simply join them? And in that case, we have the Bible, we have the world, and we go, all right, let's talk. Like, that, that's kind of where, are we there? But the reality is that none of these responses work. None of these tendencies work because none of them understand who we are. None of them, have a, none of them are founded on our identity. Instead, Paul offers this very simple reminder. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. Know who you are. Firmly hold to this gospel, knowing that your world is probably not going to hold on to it with you but praying and, and hoping that they will hear it and respond. Know who you are in Christ. And so the question that we're gonna be asking several times throughout our journey through 1 Corinthians is, is this simple question, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Because if you do not, there is no wonder why we are tossed side to side. There's no wonder that we feel like we are unsettled and we don't know if we do not, there's no wonder when, when like the Corinthians, we, we, take, we take what we know and we just put it down. There's no wonder why we, do, why we do this. But if we do know who we are, if we know that we belong to God, that we are called out to Christ, that we are a part of a family of God that is so much bigger, everything changes just as ridiculous as it is for us to try to force non-believers to behave like believers, it is equally ridiculous for us to be content with believers behaving just like non-believers. It does not make sense. Why? Because it's not who we are. It's not who we are. It's, it's like a dog acting like a cat. It doesn't make sense. It's not who we are. We, are. we belong to God, called out in Christ, part of a global family, meaning we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to bondage. We're no longer, get this, this is freedom, bound to what our culture tells us. So our goal is not to please them anyway. Our goal is to point them to him. That's, it, it gives us freedom. It gives us 
freedom. We're children of God. This is who we are. So Paul in 1 Corinthians starts off this letter with a simple reminder of our identity because how we believe and see our identity makes a profound difference for how we interact with our culture. And this letter is very much about interacting with our culture. We have to start with who we are. And let me just be clear. There occasionally... um, Sinners will do good things. Um, and occasionally, um, uh, believers will do some pretty terrible things. This is why I bet you that in this room, we can name some pretty good non-believers and some pretty terrible Christians. Like, this happens. But let's just be clear. Um, by the way, that's where the Corinthian church was when this letter was written. But what Paul is looking at here is something that lies beneath that surface. And he's speaking specifically to who we are at our core. Who are we? Who are you? Who are you? What is your identity? He's looking at that because that matters. We belong to God because of that. Because of that, we submit to his terms. We don't create our own. We are called out in Christ, and because of that, we've changed our loyalties. Instead of trying so hard to please them, we are now in it to please our Lord, to please him. We're a member of the global and timeless family of God. Because of that, we're not going to be tossed side to side by 2017's philosophical fads. That's not what we're going to do. Because we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of something greater. We're a part of something that never changes. That has been true yesterday, today, and it will be true forever. We are his people, called out, placed in our culture to stand on and to proclaim boldly the gospel. That's who we are. That is our identity. And so over the next several weeks, we are going to look at some very crucial issues. Some touchy issues. We're going to look at, at, at some of these things that, that Paul is tackling, and I believe it's timely for us, as we seek to apply the gospel to every aspect of our life. 1 Corinthians is a book that shows us how to apply the gospel to every aspect of our, of our life. But it's important that as we start this journey, that we ask ourselves this question often. Do you know who you are? Let's pray. God, your word is so good because it is yours. We thank you so much for your your word, your truth in in this book. We thank you so much that you have done so much for us that you have sent your son to accomplish what we could never accomplish. God, we are a people that are overwhelmed by your love, by your grace, by your mercy. As we are here and we wrestle with who we are, our identity, God, would you show us who we are? In this room, now, even in this moment, through your spirit, would you, would you bring peace where we are lacking peace?
God, and would you bring conviction where there is blatant sin? Would you just bring that because we know that you discipline those you love. You call those that are yours. And so in this room, as we, as we feel that, let that just be a testimony that we are yours. Let us rejoice in that and let us leave this moment, leave this moment knowing better who we are in you, that we are your children who you love so much that you sent your son to live the life we could not live, to die the death we deserved, to conquer death, to resurrect, giving us victory that we, by your grace and your grace alone that is given to us through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's who we are. That's our identity. We belong to you. We are called out in Christ, and we are part of your family. God, we thank you for that. Help that never to become old news. In Jesus' name, amen.